Let's turn back the clock to a century ago, where in 1923 and the Bombay Legislative Council has just passed a resolution enabling Dalits to access public places like wells and water tanks. Four years later, in 1927, however, Savarnas continued to prevent Dalits from accessing drinking water. On 20th March that year, Baba Sahib Ambedkar led a public demonstration where Dalits collectively drank water from a public tank in Maharashtra's Mahad district. While these were landmark acts, Savarnas continued to prevent Dalits almost a century later, and particularly Dalit women, from accessing drinking water. We learn more about this and the important shifts brought under the colonial, post-colonial, and liberalisation periods in India. I'm Abhishek, and this week on Research Radio, we'll speak to Deepa Joshi about access to water. Dr. Joshi is with the International Water Management Institutes and the research program on water, land, and ecosystems, where she is the Gender, Youth, and Inclusion Lead. We'll be discussing her EPW article titled "Caste, Gender, and the Rhetoric of Reform in India's Drinking Water Sector." I've shared a link to it in the show notes. Thank you for joining us on the show, Deepa. Thank you very much for having me, Abhishek. I'm I'm delighted to be here. Yes. So could you start by telling us about what made you interested in focusing on access to drinking water in India? I I think the question becomes a bit more specific for me and I you know it goes down to growing up as a young girl in the eastern Himalayan town of Darjeeling and my own experiences with acute water scarcity and my own sort of intrigue with the fact that you know we had so much rainfall everything was so green and fertile and Darjeeling was <laughs> far removed from any pictures and images of water scarcity that one normally visualizes and yet i grew up in acute water scarcity where we would get as a household about 2 to 3 buckets of water a day from the municipal services and not regularly as well and so there was no other option but having to rely on carrying water or having water carried from groundwater springs which are common in the area and so enormous energy effort and also money went into this process but also i think growing up as as a young adult and really having to deal with rationing water for everyday household use for bathing for washing were things that really stuck with me as as a person and and as i said for me the issue was not just of water in india it was really this intrigue about how come we were supposedly located in the himalayan water towers and yet grew up experiencing such acute water scarcity so that that has always remained at at the back of my mind as as something that's very personal and that's also very political in the sense it's questions about why would i then experience relative abundance when i went down let's say in north india where everything pointed out to a scarcity of water but yet you know the taps were flowing yes yes i I think that helps understand the urgency with which you've written the EPW article. Um could you take our listeners to your research site Kumaon in Uttarakhand and describe what it's like in terms of access to water? My first experience on the gender dimensions of water in Kumaon was as a young bride when I went into the our ancestral village near the town of Almora which is quite famous but the village itself Skolmala very small so one of the first things that I was asked to do and even though I did not live there this was just like an occasional you know this was a first time visit to the ancestral village I was given a small uh, container and asked to go and fetch water from the spring and I'm reminded that this is like a ritualistic ceremony for a young bride that when you get married and come into these villages you know you're acquainted with 
the water source and you're also reminded of your responsibility for fetching water. And the elders in the village wanted me to do that, even though they knew I wasn't going to be staying there, etc. It was just like a ceremonial um, thing that they would that they wanted me to to undertake. And it sort of struck me that, okay, this this in a way, it's also cementing, you know, the, the responsibility of women to water. Not that I would necessarily experience it, but if I were to put myself in the place of any other young bride who actually lives in the village, this would be the work. And also on, on this very first visit to this underground water spring and the beautiful structure that was built over it, and it looked very pretty, very beautiful. And I was also reminded to take my shoes off when I walked into the, the structure to fetch water. And I was asked, you know, to bow down and to sort of bow my head in prayer and, and was told that, that this was a sacred space. And then when my, I started asking questions, then obviously, you know, the, the, the women around me said, you know, this is sacred. So we don't come here when we are menstruating because we are polluted then. So that was the first earliest memory that I had. But then, you know, so much more. I came to see in my research as to how this this fetching of water being a gendered responsibility and and the exclusion of certain groups of people, primarily the Dalits in the village, come together and how this is not just about gender, not just about caste, but it is really in it's an intersectional inequality that impacts obviously the most you know Dalit women you know who face the both of these disparities. Yes, and that that segues nicely to one of the quotes uh, you use that I wanted to draw our listeners' attention to, where one of your interlocutors, a Dalit woman, said, quote, Water scarcity is to sit up the whole night, filling a container, glass by glass, as it trickles into our small spring. We often don't wash the utensils and just wipe them with a cloth. We feel so dirty and unclean in the summer. We do not wash our clothes for weeks, just rinsing them with a little water. These people say we are dirty and smell, but how can we be clean without water? End quote. Could you expand on this quote? Sure. Um, if you read a paper that I had written long ago on pollution and purity and the role of water, here I've ex- expressed you know, in great detail how water has been the medium of creating and constituting and maintaining pollution, and as well as gender, but also water. If you understand the fourfold caste system in Hinduism and those who lie outside of this fourfold caste system, the Dalits, um, it's very clear that these are the people who are who have been socially allocated the most so-called polluting tasks, which are essentially related with dirt, with feces, with death, you know, with rituals of cleansing or rituals of death and 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 birth. So all of these tasks, which were considered polluting in Hinduism. And whereas, you know, any any Hindu family undergoes a ritualistic pollution, let's say during death or during birth or after sexual intercourse or after going to the toilet and coming in contact with feces, you know, all of this can be washed away with water. Whereas, you know, the pollution, you know, that is associated with the Dalits obviously is permanently cast in stone, right? So they, that can never be washed away. And obviously the lines between the castes are irreversible as well. So you can't jump from one to the other. And this also sort of really lays down the fact that if you go into the scriptures and and the religious texts, then the role of water in both purifying the upper caste Hindus from a ritualistic or an acquired, temporarily acquired pollution is very clear. And as well as water has a very key role in in sort of uh, maintaining this caste pollution line, for example, in the villages that I worked in, the Dalits, both men and women, were not allowed into the springs, the under, you know, the groundwater springs that were used by higher caste Hindus. And, and 
whenever there was a fear that that they might have in the let's say in at night or unseen quote unquote stolen water then like there would be um, stories told about how the water level is decreasing and it might have been polluted by the touch of a dalit and it needed a purifying ceremony and these stories and were, were not just mythological you know they were very much alive so so for example if i take you into the village where i went you know there were these it was the same village and yet there were these landscapes of abundance where there was plenty of water where there were springs where the springs were functioning and landscapes where there was enough water where the springs were very small were not functioning well and these were often locations where the dalits you know were living and there was of course like in all of these old traditional villages a lot of social segregation between where the dalits lived and where the rest of the village lived so this idea of pollution and and water and dirt and smell is very intricately linked to caste based discrimination i mean and a very simple example of that is you know it none of that has changed if you look at the caste of the sanitation workers the sewage workers in urban india you know you will not find a single higher caste hindu male working as a sanitation worker you know as a in the sewage cleaning process neither will you find any higher caste women and men you know cleaning the streets and and dealing with your dirt this stigma and this link of caste and and dirt based work has continued into modern india and is very much alive yes yes and as as somebody who's done extensive field work um, deepa i'm curious about the behind the scenes process particularly things that were not mentioned in the published paper could you share maybe one or two experiences that help us get a better sense of uh, the social dynamics so let me literally take you on a on the trip that i had so many years ago so as i entered the main village uh, after a very long walk from the road head as i said it was very pretty and you know there were springs there were these small drains that came from the spring carrying water into the fields and it sort of almost made me feel that maybe i've come to the wrong place maybe you know that this is not a place where i could be investigating water uh, access water scarcity gender etc and i i realized very soon that this was where the village elite lived where the higher caste individuals and households in the in the village lived and of course there were problems of of gender associated with water so the fact that you know the the responsibility of of accessing water using water at the at the household level was definitely the task of of women however you know there wasn't actually an a scarcity problem and then i walked up further upstream uh, into the village and this is where then i encountered uh, the first dalit habitation there was a higher caste household as well in this location that was at quite a distance away from the dalit households and there were two springs that were located here one that was for the sole use of the higher caste household and who often when begged or asked might give water to the dalit households in favor of some you know unpaid tasks uh, that had to be done for this household and there were these group of ha- dalit households of some 25 households you know who who relied on a extremely small poorly functioning spring it sort of made me question that i mean why is this in the same landscape you know it is not just to do with the fact of this exclusion it's also a fact of an economic exclusion the inability to invest in in you know further improving these water springs it's it's also very much a social and political exclusion where they cannot bring these issues of water scarcity to the attention of of the higher caste villagers so for so many exclusions woven into one which made it necessary for the dalit woman you know as you've quoted 
to be sitting up all night filling water glass by glass as it trickled into their small poorly functioning spring um and uh, as someone who consulted people across castes uh, could you shed light on how your presence as a researcher affected the local caste and, and gender dynamics if at all so it was very interesting so by marriage i i am kumauni so i was really welcomed into the village and said to be a daughter in law and the village that i did most of my work was was a village that was you know mostly inhabited by the kshatriyas so the 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 caste dominant caste group of the kshatriyas so they, they also sort of really respected me as as a as a young brahmin woman who was you know kumauni and and had come to their village to look at water so the early reception that i received from these high Uh, villages was extremely warm and and very welcoming and and you know very caring i was seen as somebody strange even then because you know i i was talking to men and talking to women so in a way i was crossing boundaries and borders that i normally crossed uh, in the local setting so there was a certain amount of an intrigue that that i was somehow not like somebody who was who was like them so i was somebody definitely different to them but nonetheless there was a lot of um, a very welcoming attitude and and now what happened is that when i then started to move up and went to the dalit households and then i later came down this this welcoming approach had really changed so there was a lot of antagonism there was a lot of disappointment that i had sat and lived with the dalits upstream and that you know i had eaten with them i had i had somehow demonstrated that all of this was fine and okay and and i think part of it I I felt that their way of coping with with all of this the the way that the higher caste um, person that I knew who had been very very pleasant to me dealt with it was by reminding me when I came back that I was not quite normal that you know what was I doing there in the village you know I had a young child who was several just a couple of months then who I had left behind at home I mean I had talked about it earlier with them so they then then the questions of intrigue were that what sort of a mother leaves their child alone and comes off to these strange villages to do research and stays you know days on at end doing doing research so i think it was a way for them to sort of accept the fact that if i had done all this it was because i was not quite normal i was not quite one of them and and the, the dalit households as well i have to add here that initially there was a lot of a, a distance that they adopted so they they were sort of very fearful initially as to why i was there they were very very fearful to offer me food they asked me several times whether i really wanted to eat whether i really wanted to drink was this what i really wanted you know and i i had to emphasize over and over again that this is precisely what i wanted and that i was i really wanted to eat and it was only much much later that you know after several days of talking that we actually opened up to each other to the extent that when i was leaving the village a group of them when i was leaving the habitation the dalit habitation a group of dalit household you know the members who i had been particularly close to came came to me and said okay while you you're going to be leaving soon so should we by then we had talked a lot about social exclusion water etc what's wrong you know how do they feel etc so they said to me that why don't we you know in your presence go, go to this higher caste water source in broad daylight and fetch water and i knew they were asking this almost as as a sign of you know will you be the person who helps us take that initial first step you know and much as i would have wanted that with everything that i you know could put together i also knew that i would i could i would and i 
could do that with them. But then tomorrow I would be gone. And, you know, I would not be the person who was living the consequences of, of this bold, daring step of not stealing water, but going directly into the, the water point of this higher caste household. So I told them, you know, explicitly in the same terms that I'm more than happy to, to go and do that with you. But then remember that I'm going to be gone tomorrow. And all, and Dalits, uh, you know, in this village as elsewhere were landless, wholly dependent on many other higher caste individuals for their livelihoods. And so this would have been an enormous risk. And in the end, they smiled and they said that obviously, you know, this was not going to be possible. That must have been a tricky situation. And uh, circling back to what you've written in the paper, you've discussed how uh, we ascribe notions of femininity and masculinity to the act of carrying water. Uh, could we delve deeper into that? So Abhishek, um, you know, when I was speaking with them and talking to them, although at that point of time, I no, no longer needed to fetch water and, and obviously I had no such responsibilities, but I was talking to them about my childhood and how it had been very similar and I, how we lived in acute water scarcity and I had to fetch water and that how, how somehow my brother seemed less responsible that for these tasks uh, compared to me and that Whereas, you know, this was more binding on me, it was less binding on him. And it was very interesting that on the one hand, that led to many stories that they shared with me, which I will tell you about. But what they also said to me was very pointed and, and very, very nice, I think, because they told me that, okay, so now you live in the cities and water flows from a tap and, you know, but tell me who's opening the taps at home the most, you know, the kitchen taps. I, I understand you even have a machine to that washes clothes and and puts the clothes in the machine and who runs the machine. You know? So they were saying that, you know, it might appear to you that the situation has changed for you, but in reality, has it really? So, you know, it, it was really interesting to, to hear them say this and, and, to, and to know that they knew that as women, we had certain shared, you know, similar, similar experiences, no matter where we were. But also what was really interesting is that then they started to share stories of of this transition that happens from childhood to adolescence, which is where masculinity and femininity really come into play and get cemented into their identities. So they were talking about the fact that how as young girls, you know, you could wear a chunni, laugh along and walk along crooked paths running and that, you know, your mother might be angry if you didn't fetch the water that you were asked to bring, you might get smacked for it, but that was it. And how that changes when they become teenagers and, and where they actually become responsible. And along with this water responsibility, there are all sorts of notions of femininity that are imposed on women on how not to talk loudly, not to laugh, you know, not to talk with uh, men outside the family. So all of these these impositions, but but similar impositions for men. And just because, you know, they, they are relieved of, let's say, water fetching responsibilities that young boys might be responsible for, this does not mean that life is necessarily very easy for young men. And also what I, I noticed in, in my research is that there were certain married men who were living there in the village, especially men who didn't have a job, you know, who didn't have a secure job. So there were two types of tendency that I saw here, that one was that there was a tendency to try and help in the house and to make up for the fact that they were not earning. And, and this was again further looked down upon by the wider society who would then say that, oh, he's a lesser man. And at the same time, there, were, there was another type of a tendency by, by men who were not doing very well to re-emphasize and reinforce their masculinity through violence and aggression. So I think put together, these, these notions of femininity and masculinity really question 
you know, the, the sort of rather abstract and, and binary way in which we talk about women versus men in relation to water. Right, right. And, and just to take a historical approach to the topic, in the paper, you, you say that the history of water can be broken down into three broad periods, the pre-colonial stage, the stage with centralized state interventions, and more recent neoliberal interventions. Could you walk us through each of these uh, time periods? Somehow the remnants of, of these three systems all coexist, you know, at any given point of time. You know, it's, it's not that what happened in the pre-colonial period has disappeared, you know, and it's not existent. So all the traditional water springs are very much from, from this pre-colonial, you know, times when water was not a responsibility of the state, when water was, you know, something that was locally managed, when water resources were locally managed. And it's also very interesting that in the in the construction of these groundwater springs, it was very interesting, you know, these traditional groundwater springs, these that, that have been written about as being very appropriate locally. And, you know, the, the very famous book by Anil Agarwal and others um, of Dying Wisdom and, and how that, that whole historical, well, locally adapted system of water management has disappeared in India. That might be very true, but if you look at it from a caste perspective, as, as was the case in the villages that I was there, so these springs were actually constructed by Dalit artisans. And then as when the spring was finally ready, then there would be a ritual cleansing, which would like free the, the, the landscape of the pollution acquired. And then ironically, these very same Dalit persons would not no longer be allowed, you know, into, into these uh, spaces. And I think that that is something that is very common in India, you know, from statues to temples to whatever else you, you want to think about. Okay, then, then you had like, you know, starting 19, post-1950s or much later in some of the remote rural areas, there were the centralized water supply systems that were set up in different states. And, you know, the, the supply of drinking water became a state responsibility. What is also interesting is that actually, when you look at it on paper, this was an improvement from, from the pre-colonial stage because, the cent, you know, the, the water supply rules and regulations uh, in, in India, you know, had emphasized that there should be priority provision of water to scheduled caste and scheduled tribe households. And scheduled tribe probably because, you know, of the assumption that these are more backward communities, but scheduled caste with a def definite uh, emphasis on the recognition of, of, you know, the fact that social exclusions are mediated through water. Now, did this actually happen in practice? It's in, in the villages that I, I was in, you know, and not just the Kuma, the ones in Kumao, but elsewhere as well. What is written in paper does not often translate to practice, you know. In fact, I remember that one of my very first visits uh, at that time, there wasn't a state of Uttarakhand. So, you know, it was uh, all Uttar Pradesh and, and, and there was uh, the, the hilly areas were called Uttaranchal. And so I started my, my, my sort of, you know, discussions and my analyses in, in Lucknow. And I remember walking into the Lucknow Jal Nigam office then and noticing a big Shiva temple uh, on the premises, which made me very uneasy because, you know, this sort of gave a very strong message as to the fact that this <laughs> this was an official space uh, should have been secular. You know, there, there should not have been a place for a temple here. But then if you then looked at you know, the staff who, who house these water institutions and a lot of other people um, have written about it and have studied about it ex extensively, including some of my colleagues uh, at Wageningen University in the Netherlands, that how 
this masculinity in in the water institutions is not in in india in nepal is not just one of men being present in these institutions it's a certain type of men and these are socially elite men higher caste men you know who house these institutions so the centralized water institutions and interventions you know which were very much the domain of higher caste men within these institutions and their sort of engagement with higher caste men in in the villages who were who were you know part of the gram panchayat who were the village heads etc resulted in the fact that you know there was not always an a robust uh, meeting of some of these uh, you know affirmative uh, water supply interventions to to lower caste households and then my my research was sort of spurred very much by the fact that at the time that i began my research there was a a push that had been you know largely led by the world bank towards decentralized water supply interventions which resulted in in the villages in actually you know existing state services and systems and infrastructure being uprooted for no wise reason and being replaced by old community uh, you know co-managed systems where community would provide labor and a small percentage of the actual financial resources and these were said to be you know going to be more effective because they were demand led that there would be a place for the communities to actually influence the demand uh, and influence the design of the water supply and infrastructure and then that led to many many questions on who is this community you know uh, is there really a community and you know if you look at the class caste gender fracture that 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 made up uh, for what what was the you know the local population then that that really led to a question about who was the community and and the fact that could everybody pay for or contribute labor towards these uh, new interventions and what would happen you know to those who could not do that and how would they be punished and and what i saw therefore consistently is that in all of these three different types of water supply systems you know which coexisted as i have been saying there were the same problems of exclusion by caste by gender and same problems of of you know inappropriateness in design from a gender perspective inappropriateness of of design from from a perspective of those who you know cannot have a voice on the table so just to give you an example that at the time that i was there there were huge meetings that were being conducted in the community uh, you know to to decide on where the infrastructure should be placed what should you know how many households are going to get individual water supply how many would rely on communal uh, services shared services and what would be the cost sort of uh, factor in determining who gets what etc so it was it was very interesting that the dalits obviously were not at the table and the dalit men dalit households would be asked to come but can you imagine going into a big gathering and then being told to sit in a certain place you know being made deliberately unequal you know the fact that everybody would be served tea except for them and they would have to fetch their own broken cups from somewhere you know to to be able to get tea i i remember coming back from one of these meetings with a dalit man who had been to this and and he said like you know it it is it is very difficult decision you know on the one hand you know we we would like to be there on the other hand you know being there makes us fully aware of how unequal we are and it's not that we have a voice you know it's not that anybody is going to listen to us but then you also have to understand that this is in the mountain this this was also because of the fact that you know dalit households are very scattered in these uh, remote rural mountain villages in in uttarakhand and 
the sheer minority of their numbers, you know, does not give them the strength that they possibly have in other places. Right, right. And was there a way that government officials and NGO leaders actually justified these exclusionary practices? I mean, in terms of who they employed and who attended their events, like you just uh, mentioned? Abhishek, it was not just to do with how they justified, you know. I, I think first and foremost, this whole development business, which has such strict timelines and great pressures to be completed and the need for efficiency, you know, this often makes for a very uncomfortable fit with challenging issues of deep-rooted equity and politics and gender power imbalances in any community, right? If you really start with an with agenda to address these wider, deep-rooted, entrenched social and political problems, then you cannot speed up, you know, the work that needs to be done. So that the efficiency, equity, you know, tension and, and contradiction is, is very, very evident and very visible because NGOs are not, for example, would not necessarily be praised for delaying a project because they were addressing these issues, right? They would be rewarded for having successfully completed X number of water supply projects in X building. So I think that is one key issue. But also what I found in, in, in my own research in Kumau was that one of the NGOs that I interacted closely with who had worked in this village that I have written about, they had only two Dalit staff members, both of whom were in very, very sort of lowly positions, right? As like office help boys. And when I actually uh, met and spoke to these two young men, you know, it was very, very evident that they, did, they really did not feel they were part of the the same organization, you know, the, the, the sort of the way that, of course, this is just hierarchy, but this is, you know, it's not that any other NGO is not hierarchical, even if not by caste, and definitely, you know, position plays a huge role in, in creating hierarchy in institutions and organizations. And I think we have very, very few truly inclusive uh, and equal organizations anywhere, leave alone in India. But also what what was very evident was that because because the founders and members of, of the NGOs were all socially elite, either Brahmins or Shaktiyas, you know, I think that the, the sort of this ability to understand and, and see these differences was also very limited. And, and also it really did not help that the project just, for example, had a blanket uh, assumption of involving women. So, you know, without asking which women and how are them. So, for example, whereas there would be a nominal representation of Dalit households in, in these water user communities and, and water user associations, you know, Dalit women never made it either on the women quota or the Dalit quota. You know, for the Dalit quota, it was, you know, like, you know, Dalit men should definitely be there. And, and the women quota was quickly and very well filled up by, you know, socially elite women. Right, right. So, so to address the deep-seated inequities, you close the article by calling for a drastic political overhaul. Could you tell me some of your suggestions and, and if there are groups already that are doing such work in the space of uh, water access? So see, for sanitation-related inequities, they are very strong social movements, Abhishek. In terms of water supply, you know, I, I feel water supply as such, uh, there's been very, very little uh, social movement around caste in relation to water supply. And I'm not quite sure why this happens, but I, I guess, you know, that this, this is also an outcome of the fact that water problems are very wicked problems, right? So they are so complex and they're manifold and they are especially evolving along very different lines. So I think if I, if I just tell you about the fact that 
in the recent past, I've been looking at hydropower development in the Eastern Himalayas and, and really looking at, at issues of water justice from, from a hydropower perspective. And now so then, then the whole momentum takes a very different stand. So it's, it's you know, the, it's, it becomes an argument of local people against the government, against a huge infrastructure development project. Whereas, you know, issues of marginality do play, and I've written about it as well, how, how issues of marginality play into these movements, play into the fact that those who are marginalized by various you know, issues often don't make it to the, the table amongst these social movements themselves. You know? But then also there's this whole issue that if we that we can't tackle so many problems, so we we are tackling hydropower issue, a hydropower problem. So we need to first tackle that, then we'll deal about caste and and identity, etc. So I I think that this is complicated, right? So I I think for me the the issue, therefore, you know, the challenge is really for social movements dealing with social exclusion along caste and other lines you know, to be able to understand the magnitude of these problems, to, to be able to understand the gender dimensions of caste water related problems, to be able to understand the rural urban dimensions of how caste and water and gender are, are to play. You know, I, I think there's a huge onus and responsibility on these organizations because unfortunately, I don't think anybody else is going to take it up. I think it calls for the formal civil society to really network with and engage with social movements and and it's very interesting uh, abhishek that i've written a paper elsewhere as well on you know very recently about you know the 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 difference between formal civil society and people's movements you know and and how the formal civil society including ngos are because by virtue of being accountable to you know the official bureaucracy how the very functioning of an ngo you know is under the permission of 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 the government of India, how the funds they receive and and how they have to account for this is very much monitored and regulated, you know, by 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 official and political structures and systems. Makes you know gives very little leeway and space for these organizations to actually tackle issues of real sticky and and complex and issues of exclusion, marginalization. It's, for me, the turning point really is of you know the need for for social movements to be to be informing various types of interventions, both official and non-governmental, and to really be like a watchdog as well in, in how so-called rhetorical promises of participation, engagement, community, uh, empowerment, etc. take place. Yes, yes. And, and a related and final question I have for you is, what is the role that you think your research can play in addressing inequity? I was with a local NGO that was supported by the State Bank of India in Orissa, and we were doing a small sort of a workshop on on the everyday experiences of gender because um, it was the, the the head of the NGO who was a nominee from nominated person from the State Bank of India was very interested in the question that I was asking and and wanted me to do a workshop on, on that would help the whole team understand and initially I had insisted that everybody in the in the NGO joined that included the, the couple you know who were the cooks the chefs in in the NGO yeah and and that was met with quite some like oh but why you know like uh, they are not part of the organization as such like they don't do the content related issues you know and 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 it was very interesting that at the end of this two day workshop that we had with the NG, uh, with with all the staff members you know the the head of the organization who was a very devoted person very committed and and used to work exceptionally hard and 
arrive in the office from around seven and leave at seven. You know what what he said at at the very closure of the workshop is that he said that I always thought that I was setting a very good example by working so hard and by being here in the office such long hours. And and I realized that after this workshop that <clears throat> my reality is not the reality of everybody who works in this organization. And neither is you know neither are my benefits and what I receive you know, for my work, the same as everybody who works. So he said that by by being here in the office premises for so long, you know, I realized that I'm setting an extremely bad example for those, you know, who, because of me being here, will be pushed to being here, but whose realities and whose life situations are extremely different to mine. And, and then he also sort of, you know, made a point about how he really finally understood as to why the, the couple who were cooking should also have been part of the organization the whole you know, workshop process. So I think I, I want to say this. So we talk a lot of, in research world about impact and policy impact. And you know, often the biggest sort of achievements are said to be if you can shape policy, right? But for me, I think it's the small and big uh, and not so big you know, intervention that are very, can be very important key milestones for change. You know? and, and I question as a political scientist, you know, the emphasis on policy and impacting policy and for the fact that it's been so well written by uh, social anthropologists like David Moss of SOAS that, you know, um, policies might change uh, enormously, but that does not change ground reality, you know. And, and so in the hydropower project that I led, you know, one of the things that I really emphasize is that our focus was would not be on influencing policy, but it would really be, be on building strength and ability of and capacity of local stakeholders to be able to question and challenge you know uh, interventions that they felt were not appropriate to the local context that was very insightful thank you so much for joining us on the show deepa you provided us with a solid crash course on access to drinking water in india thanks very much for the opportunity abhishek i i really enjoyed speaking with you thank you so much Deepa's reflection on her experience as a Brahmin woman researcher illuminated how one's social location can impact the kind of people or interlocutors one is allowed to consult and learn from. Deepa's article is full of a lot more insights and I do recommend reading it. I've shared a link to it in the show notes. Next week, we'll speak to Samina Dalwai and Abhinav Tyagi about reservations and its impact on women from marginalized castes to access employment and educational opportunities. That'll be the last episode of this season. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for the next season, please reach out to us via any of EPW's social media handles or via email where social at epw.in. And if you like this episode, do share it with whoever you think may be interested and subscribe to us. Take care and I'll see you next week.